Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see you all here again this morning as we continue uh, in our Gospel of Luke. Last week I gave you a charge about being over-familiar with uh, the particular account that we're looking at today and last week. Being over-familiar about the crucifixion, being over-familiar about the burial of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and his resurrection. Ever since you've attended church, you would have heard these stories time and time and time again. Every Easter you hear these stories. If you're in an evangelical church, you'll hear them often because it is the foundation of our faith. And like last week, this week I want to charge you again, let's not be over-familiar. Let's look with fresh eyes at what our precious Saviour has done. Let's be captivated by his love for a sinful humanity. So without further ado, let us read Luke chapter 23. Starting at verse 50. Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Last week we looked at the crucifixion and death of Jesus. We saw the horrendous physical torture that Jesus went through. We saw certain groups mocking and scoffing and ridiculing him. The rulers scoffed, the soldiers mocked, one of the criminals ridiculed and mocked him. And yet we saw a great, great view of hope as Jesus turned to the other criminal and upon his confession said, you will be with me in paradise. We have great hope also because Jesus turned to the crowd and to his executioners and said, Father, Forgive them. We also see a great hope as uh, the centurion, the one who guarded a hundred soldiers, turned and for the seventh time in this gospel, in this very short account on the, the Passion Week, said, this man was innocent. 
And not in a lib sort of way, he just, he said, with certainty, this man was innocent. The centurion was a hardened soldier, saw many thousands of crucifixions, and yet this was different. And then we saw the response of the crowd. Some went away, and the text tells us, beating their breasts. Element of repentance. His closest ones, his acquaintances, his disciples, and the women who were with him from Galilee, they, they stood at a distance, and they watched these things. The text doesn't tell us what they observed as they watched, but I would imagine their hearts were being ripped apart as they saw their Lord being crucified. As they heard him cry his final breath and commit into his Father's hands his spirit. And last week, remember we talked about this, this wasn't something of a surprise, this was part of God's definite Luke 22, 22 says this plan of him being of him being betrayed had been predetermined. In the next 22, verse 22, we see Luke also say this whole scene, this whole aspect of what the Messiah went through was part of God's definite plan. And then we have a change. And we have a man by the name of Joseph. And Joseph's identified as uh, from the town of Arimathea. Arimathea is just a, a few miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, notice that Luke gives us the distinctive here that, uh, and it's unique to Luke, that it was a Jewish town. You know, Luke was writing to Theophanes, a Gentile, and he wanted to make uh, a specific example of this. It was like if I were to say to you, um, like I was born in Hastings. Where would you say Hastings is? Near Frankston. Yeah. So I'd have to give you my formal title. Nathan, a beloved Kiwi from the town of Hastings, New Zealand. Or it could be Hastings, England. Or it could be Hastings, Frankston. So... Luke gives us this little bit of detail to provide some historicity around who Joseph was. He was from this town. Now, this town was kind of famous. It was the place that Samuel was born. And it was actually known in the Old Testament as Ramah. But by the New Testament times, the name had changed to Arimathea. So Joseph is from this Jewish town of Arimathea. What else do we learn about, about Joseph? A couple of significant things. He was a member of a council. Now, that's not like the Maroondah City Council. It's not like uh, a PTA council. This particular word that's used here identifies this council as being part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, a council 
that was primarily responsible amongst Jewish society. Remember, the Jews were a people under authority to Rome. They were a conquered people. But inside their own structures, uh, the Sanhedrin looked after all the judicial elements of uh, the Jewish culture, customs, and uh, orderly behaviour. Now, so for Joseph to be part of this, he had to reside in Jerusalem, which he, he did, even though his hometown was Arimathea. He was part of this council. Now, what's significant about this council is that they were the ones that actually, along with the elders of the people, the elders of the people is also the same word used for council of the people, the Sanhedrin. They were the same ones that gathered with the priests and the scribes and said, crucify him. But Luke gives us this little tag here and he says, well, he was a member of that council. But he was good and he was righteous. Why? Because he hadn't consented to the decision and the action. He hadn't consented to what his fellow council members had done. And I can only deduct from this fact that he hadn't consented, he was not there. Because we read in the text of uh, Luke 23 that after they'd gone to the council, all of the company arose and brought him to Pilate, saying, this is the man who has claimed to be God and he, he's claimed to pay taxes against Caesar. This is the fellow. So for the consistency of Scripture, Joseph obviously was not involved with this mock council meeting because Luke tells us clearly that this man was of good repute and he was seeking after God's kingdom. And isn't that wonderful as you read that? Isn't it wonderful to see that on the one hand we have this really, really horrible view of who the Sanhedrin were and what they did to Jesus. And yet on the other hand you have Joseph who was good and righteous and was looking for the kingdom. And what did Joseph do? He went and asked for the body of Jesus. Now this is significant. Because when you ask for the body, when he asked for the body of the Lord, the body was dead. We hear from the other gospel accounts especially the, the account in Mark. Pilate is uh, stunned by this request and he seeks proof from the centurion. Well, is he actually dead? And the centurion turns and uh, he learned, Pilate, uh, Mark fifteen forty-five says this, and when he learned, that's Pilate from the centurion, that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So Joseph, a good and righteous man, a member of the religious elite, a man who had faith and deep faith in God, 
took down and wrapped Jesus' body. He took it down from the cross. He wrapped it in a linen shroud and he carried this body to his own tomb. Luke doesn't say that it's his own tomb, but we get that detail from Matthew. All Luke says is this was a new tomb. We correlate the two. Joseph takes Jesus to his own tomb in Jerusalem. And when did all this happen? All this happened on the day of his crucifixion. All this happened on the the day of preparation, the 24-hour period before the Sabbath would begin. The day of preparation was uh, something that was quite common. It was a time where you prepared everything for the next day so you wouldn't work. And was commanded by by the Lord in Exodus sixteen, Exodus twelve. Sorry. So this is just showing the the uniqueness of the festival, the goings on, and the righteousness of Joseph. Because Joseph was following the Old Testament law. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter twenty one. Read a couple of verses there. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. And if a, a man was uh, committed a crime and punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. So, Joseph was good, he was righteous, he was law-abiding, and he knew he had to get that body down off the tree. And the woman came and they, the woman who had come from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They observed carefully where the, the tomb was. This is an important aspect for Luke because during his time when he was writing there was all sorts of rumours going on about that. Oh, we don't know if Jesus really rose from the dead, he was placed in a different tomb and hidden. That type of stuff was going on when this gospel account was written and, and Luke wants to make it very clear, no. More than one witness knew where Jesus' body laid. You have Joseph as a witness because it was his tomb and you have the woman who were with him. We later read on in 24, we, three of the women are named, but they, there's a greater than three. As I said, there were others. And as we read through the parallel accounts, we see there is also greater than three. 
a testimony to say that this is where Jesus' body laid. And then the woman returned from the tomb and they prepared uh, ointment and spices. So as these women returned, they, they were preparing these burial barns. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They returned to prepare the spices and the ointments. The original words for spices and ointments are beautiful words. It's the first one is Uromata, so we get the word aroma from. And the second one is myron, so myrrh. You see, the Jews didn't embalm. So the spices and perfumes helped uh, to calm the stench of death and slow the de- uh, decomposition. And the very fact that that we're going to prepare these elements indicates that they did not think or know that Jesus would rise from the dead. I can't help but seeing the contrast between the crucifixion and death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus. The crucifixion and death is full of mockery, scoffing, and slander. The burial of Jesus is performed by devout and sincere people. They handled Jesus' body well. They placed it in a place of honor. They kept to the law and took the body off the, the cross before the day had completed. They showed great respect for Jesus and made a special effort to care for his body. And you can see the contrast between the two groups. One mocking, one scoffing, one honouring and adoring. You see, this is what Luke does right throughout this gospel. He poses us with those questions. Where do you sit? Are you the scoffer and the mocker? Are you the worshipper and the adorer? The question was posed back in AD 70. The question was posed in 2015. What will you do with Jesus? You mock and scoff. Do you worship and adore? Do you mock and scoff or do you repent and serve? Let's read further. Luke 24, verse 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went in and they did not find the body 
of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. But the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who had told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like idle talk. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stopping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. It's wonderful because Luke 24 gives us three views of post-resurrection events. This morning we're going to have a look at scene one, if you like. We will break these into three scenes. Next week we'll look at scene two and scene three. But primarily this morning we're just going to concentrate on the very first part of the resurrection account. It's interesting because each resurrection account throughout the Gospels, whether it's in Matthew, whether it's in Mark, or whether it's in Luke, there's only several common elements to what goes on. Some of the common elements are there is nobody. In all of the accounts, when they go to look in the tomb, the body is gone. One of the other common accounts throughout the three is that the stone's been rolled away. Another one is that they come seeking him. Another one is that he is risen. But that's about where the commonality stops. Because it's really fascinating because each of these three accounts are from three different perspectives and each author has a view he wants to place on the importance of the resurrection. And Luke is very unique in what he says. So I'm going to break up this, this 12, these 12 verses to help you out. We've got the setting. Verse 1 is the setting of, of the resurrection. Verse 2 and 3 is the empty tomb. Then we have a report from two angels through to verse 8. Then we have a report by the woman back to the apostles, verses 9 through 11. And then we have Peter's response. So in this account, um, Luke's account lacks any direct appearance of Jesus to the woman. Matthew and Mark, you, you have an appearance of Jesus. But what we have is the scene that is set 
It's the first day of the week and it's at early dawn. Or a better translation there would be it's at deep dawn. Now, does anyone know what deep dawn is? No, I didn't either. Deep dawn. What a stupid thing to say. Deep dawn is that time, uh, say at the moment you probably get up just before sunrise about 5.30, still dark-ish, maybe quarter past five. Still dark-ish, but the light just starts appearing. That's what's known as deep dawn. So this is when the woman, they are keen to get to the tomb. They're keen to show their love for their saviour. They're there with their spices. They're there with their ointments. They're there with the things they have prepared. And they leave at the crack of dawn or deep dawn. And they arrive. And they discover two amazing things. Firstly, the stone is rolled away. And secondly, there was no body. Now just place yourself in this situation for a moment. 24 hours earlier, you had seen the body being laid. That's why Luke doesn't avoid that. He says these women were there and they saw the tomb. They knew it was the right tomb. And they knew how his body was laid. And they arrive 25, 26 hours later. And the stone's rolled away and the body is gone. This is the only time Luke mentions the stone. The other gospels say, yes, there is a stone there. So Luke just says, look, you know this is a general custom of a burial tomb. There's always a stone in front of it. Matthew is particularly interested in the stone because he talks about um, the stone being there and also sealed by a guard of a hundred centurions. Matthew's the only account that talks about the, the soldiers that were sent to guard the tomb in case somebody would steal the body. Luke doesn't have that detail. Luke clearly just has these beautiful women who have watched Jesus die, who have watched his body be laid, and now see his body is no longer there. So their response is not unusual. Verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, while they were perplexed, now that's a great word, and it's to be understood in this way they were in a really confused state. I saw the body not so long ago, I saw the stone, I'd see none of that. They were at loss. They would have had huge doubt. 
they would have been incredibly uncertain. And this is what the perplexed thing is trying to grab and grapple with this word that they were perplexed. They did not understand what they were seeing. And then we have two witnesses, two men who stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, once again, this perplexed, this frightenedness, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the man said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? This message by the two angels is unique to Luke. We don't find it in the other synoptics. And it's wonderful how Luke has recorded this here. Because the angels go on and say, Why do you seek? And they answer the question, He is not here, but He is risen. There are two things going on here. They are seeking, and the answer is, He is risen. And the he is risen part of it is just a wonderful term that we just don't get in our English. The he is risen is what we call a divine passive. God has acted upon this situation and he's raised Jesus from the dead. He's the only one that could do it. And to affirm that, what do the men say to them? Remember, just as he told you. Remember how he told you in Galilee that he must die, be crucified and rise again on the third day. Just as it was predicted, it now has happened. It's part of God's definite plan and it's come to pass. Take great hope and encouragement in this theophanous. Remember this is who the letter is written to. Take great hope and encouragement in the fact that he is alive. Your faith is not in vain. Jesus is alive. His body is not here. He is risen. Reminds me of a funny time in the States we, when we um, enjoyed a couple of Easter's there. The tradition of the church we were in around Easter time, whenever the words he is risen was said, you would have, you echo, he is risen indeed. I won't ask you to do this today. Well, we might do it later. But um, my lovely wife, Julie, there looked after nanny three young children while we were there. And uh, Julie was giving thanks for the food one, one day. And this was several weeks after the Easter celebration. And uh, she was giving thanks. And in good brethren tradition, you have pauses when you give thanks, you know. You say, dear Lord, thank you for the food. And then you pause and think about what you're going to say next. And, and, um, and Julie said, oh, we just thank the Lord that he has risen. And then one of the little, little guys came up, he has risen indeed, in the middle of the grace. But it's just a beautiful picture that the reality of the fact that those words meant that he has indeed risen. And this is the force of what's going on here. The angels are pronouncing to the woman who were faithfully coming to pour out love through the spices and the ointment. Hey, he's not here. And remember, he told you this. 
Remember he is certain to his word. And remember he is risen. And then the angels use uh, verse 7 and just say that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Must be delivered up. Must be given over. There's another better translation of that. The Son of Man must be given over into the hands of sinful men and to be crucified and to be raised. All infinitives. Infinitives of purpose. These are all statements of pure fact. Which means these are divine statements. This verse portrays that God allowed this this to occur through that humans were directly responsible for the first two actions, that of giving Jesus over to the Sanhedrin, to the scribes, to the elders, being crucified under the hands of the Romans. There are acts of humanity against Jesus, but they're a part of God's divine plan. But on the third day he would rise. That's an act of God. It's only God has power over death, hell and the grave. Only God. And the woman, wonderful verse here, and they remembered his words. They cast their minds back over the years that they had walked beside Jesus. They cast their minds back probably back to chapter 9, verse 22, where he had pronounced this the first time. This is what is going to happen. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So it's not just the apostles are sitting here. We've got a, a group and band of disciples. It doesn't say where they gathered, but they are together. And they're reporting back, and they obviously celebrated Passover together or Sabbath together. And then the women are identified, Mary, Joanna, and Mary. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the other woman with them. So they, they weren't the only three that went to the tomb either. There were more. How large the group is, I have no idea. But there's multiple witnesses to the fact that the body is no longer there. That's the point Luke's making. You've got the witness of the angels, and you've got a human witness which is larger than three. At this point. But it's interesting, the response of the apostles, is it not? And as I thought about this through the week, I would have thought, well, that's probably what my response would be. I haven't seen it, therefore I don't Listen to what the, the words are used, but these words seem to them as idle talk. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Idle talk. There's a term in ancient times that was used in medical settings. 
and it was to explain people's speech when they were delirious or very, very sick. So that's what the apostles are thinking about the testimony of this group of women. You're just delirious. How can it be? How can he rise from the dead? How can the body not be there? But you know what? Peter rose and said, I'm going to see this for myself. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marvelling at what had happened. See, when you do a study of Peter, you see this man who denied Christ three times, who was struck with the reality of his own disbelief. He hears the testimony of this group of women, and yet he's moved to action. Because his denials had taught him a really valuable lesson to trust Jesus. To trust Jesus at his word. So he got up and he went and had a look for himself. Luke is very brief on the details. The other gospels give a far greater explanation of what went on with Peter and John and a few of the others as they ran to the tomb. Since we're concentrating on Luke, we're just looking at the impact of this here. Because, you know, this provides a key point for Luke's readers. And it provides a key application for us today. Even though they could not see Jesus, I'm talking about Luke's readers, because this was written post the resurrection. It's written to Theophanus, who wanted to know the certainty about his faith, even though they could not see Jesus. And even though they were under fire for believing in him, they could trust he was alive. They could trust he was alive because of the testimony of this word. That's the same for you and I, folks. We don't see Jesus, but we see an empty tomb. He is alive. He is risen. Because this is the importance of the resurrection. I'll give you a brief couple of thoughts because we're going to be dealing with this also next week. But I'll give you a brief couple of thoughts to consider this week as you consider the resurrection. Why is it important for us? Why is it important? I'd ask you to look at Romans 4.25. Because in Romans 4.25 it tells us that the resurrection is the sign that God approved Christ's sacrifice. Because God raised him from the dead, it proves that God is satisfied that atonement has occurred. He is satisfied that death has been conquered. He is satisfied that sin no longer is a barrier because Christ has paid the price. Because you know, the wages of sin is death, right? We all die. That's the state we're in because of sinful humanity. But the free gift of God is eternal life. That's the power of the resurrection. A second point to consider this week around the importance of the resurrection. The resurrection, without a doubt, is the basis for our faith and forgiveness. 
Have a look at 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Paul states this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Well, your faith is of no value. You're still in your sins. Our faith is dependent on the fact that Christ is risen. The resurrection is central to the gospel. You read that in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That's the third point. And the fourth point to consider the importance of the resurrection is it's the basis for believing that we will be raised. Hallelujah, what a saviour. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The very fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and conquered death means you and I who put our faith and trust in him have eternal life. It is central. It is important. And it is affirmed in this wonderful historical account from the Gospel of Luke. The question is, how does the resurrection impact you today? If you go out this week, how will it impact your faith, your life, your hope, and your walk with the Lord? I can't answer that question. But let's not be familiar with the resurrection. Let's marvel at the fact that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Thanks, music team. We'll sing our last song.